Swami Kriyananda, a spiritual friend and teacher to many, has been a direct disciple of the great Kriya Yogi Paramhansa Yogananda since 1948. He has written over 70 books and 400 pieces of music. World-renowned as a singer, composer, and lecturer, Swami Kriyananda has shown how to apply spiritual principles to art, music, education, business, relationships, and much more. Swamiji spent three and a half years living closely with his guru, Yogananda, the great Indian master and author of Autobiography of a Yogi. He went on to become vice president of Self-Realization Fellowship in the organization Yogananda-ji founded. After leaving Self-Realization Fellowship, he founded Ananda in 1968. Welcome. Thank you. And in the interest um, of... I know that in recent years there has been some controversy around your organization, so if I may call you Mr. Walters. You may call me Swami Kriyananda. Okay. All right. Walters is perfectly correct, but it's not the name I use. All right, Swami Kriyananda. I so much appreciate the work that you did, and your most recent book is an exploration of Yogananda's teaching, and I wanted to in opening our conversation, I wanted to let you know that my first spiritual exposure in a very profound way was reading Autobiography of a Yogi. And the thing that I remember most specifically was where uh, Yogananda instructs his readers to, if they wish some spiritual recognition, to appeal to Babaji. Do you recall that? That's right. He, what he said was that anyone who appeals to him with sincerity will receive an instantaneous answer. And I have to say that I was significantly shocked because in a dream that evening, Babaji appeared to me. Isn't that great? I was just amazed. Mm. And I continue to puzzle about that. Your most recent book has to do with the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. And... One of the things that, um, and again, I'm going to go off the track a little bit. You spoke about, in becoming a disciple of Yogananda, that you reached an attunement with Yogananda. Can you tell us about the attunement you reached? That's, you know, in the, in the Bible, in the Gospel of St. John, it says, as many as received him, to, the, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Most Christians take that to mean as those who believe in him. Mm-hmm. It's much more than belief. You have to try to tune into the consciousness. And you see, we're living in an ego, and the goal of spiritual realization, spiritual effort, mm-hmm. is to understand that we aren't this ego. This is just a little dream of God's. He created the whole universe. And this thought, I, is born of the cosmic I, which is our true self. Right. You are as old as God. Yes. You don't exist apart from him. Yep. And self-realization means realizing that he is your true self. However, to make that leap from ego consciousness to cosmic consciousness is impossible for the ego. The ego cannot think <laughs> in cosmic terms. <laughs> the ego can't terms. do it. Huh? The ego can't do it. Can't do it. It doesn't fit there. That is why when, Jesus, when it says in the Bible to the, all those who received him, receiving him, means tuning into his consciousness. Now, that's not something you can just define because it's beyond definition, but it is a reality that you feel more and more that his consciousness is operating in your consciousness. And this is something we all need to do. Well, and really, the two are not different. That's the trick, is to find out that they aren't different. 
That's right. That's right. You know, and I Not guess so easy. Well, yes and no. I mean, and I have to say, you know, uh, listeners to my show know that I am a piano technician, and I must say that pianos have taught me so much about spirit. And I had the experience at one point where I was tuning for uh, the Steinway Concert Artist Program, and w- with a piano that was immaculately groomed many hours a week, and I had the curious sensation that after I tuned it, it disappeared. And what I mean by that is that uh, to its own highest functioning, it ceased to be any impediment. That's a very interesting story. Thank you. Now, it seems to me, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm wanting to attend to, is how to invite people into this transparency with spirit so that they disappear. So that, in fact, there is no more ego. Well, that can't be done except with the help of somebody who has it. Really? You can get a little bit on your own, but you cannot get out of it. This is, I'm quoting you can't a, get out of it by a your thousand own ego. millennial tradition, Right. but I, I subscribe to it. Yeah. My guru subscribed to it. You need the help of somebody who, you know, if you want to climb a mountain, a tyro like me would be simply, it would be foolish to try. Mm-hmm. I need somebody who can teach me. But if I were to fall, from not having been taught, I'd only use what, lose one life. To fall spiritually can mean several incarnations. Oh, yeah. So a guru yeah. is very important. And yet, um, do we not all go back to that state of unity uh, at the moment of death? That you, you, uh, I would say yes to that, except that you said but. I don't like that word but. It is a fact. Well, maybe but I should have said but. the end. <laughs> right, right, right. The but, you know, there's a story Yogananda told about uh, a man in ancient India who was being bothered by a demon. Oh, so right. he took a, you know the story, you no, remember no. reading it in the book. Well, he uh, took some powder and uttered a Vedic mantra and oh, that's right. threw the powder onto the demon and the demon laughed. He said, before you could even say your incantation, right. I myself got into the powder. Absolutely. So the problem is that this very self with which we're trying to affirm egolessness is already sort of diseased by ego. And to get out of that consciousness is not so easy as tuning a piano. Well, and yet I would offer that there is a continual attunement, as you are saying, with with the guru, with the source. It's got to be more and more. uh, Yes, yes. And and, um, let me ask you this. Do you feel that the Buddha was able to attain... I think there have been many great masters, and certainly Buddha was one of them. Uh-huh. So was Jesus Christ. So was Moses. Now, these people didn't have a guru, did they? You don't know. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. But we there's don't more to that. Oh, yes. You see, once a soul is free, and those were three souls, they didn't need to have a guru. Usually, they, in order to set a good example, they take gurus, like Yogananda took Sri Yukteswar. Yes, he didn't yes. need that. Right. And we don't know, I mean, Yogananda said that Jesus had a guru. Mm -hmm. He didn't go into the life of Buddha. We don't know enough about it. But it's an ancient tradition which all masters who have talked about it have said you need one. Well, even in the Buddhist tradition, there is a a lineage uh, of of a transmission of mind. Well, obviously, you know better than I, so I'll just accept that. And next in the spiritual path, you, you spoke about a spiritual path being unique to each person's temperament. Yeah. And I have to say that my experience as a piano technician, I have to kind of find out what that piano wants. What, 
how God has shown up through this piano or through this person to meet in, in an infinite way the need and to be able to facilitate this transparency. Well, Anthony, that's a fascinating thing. In other words, the individual, I'm sure nobody else has done it with the way you did. Right. But the piano, too, is an individual in exactly. a sense. And so individuality, God, as Guru, my Guru said, is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. Right. And so, yes, you have to find the reality of each thing you're doing. And each person has to find it within themselves. Fascinating. Indeed, Isn't it? yes. Okay. Yes. That's, you know, and that doesn't mean there aren't rules that apply to everybody. Oh, Nobody right. can say, well, I believe in hating people. It doesn't work. No. There are certain principles, but they're somehow specified, or whatever the word is, for each individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You love in a particular way. You give in a particular way. You forgive. And every, everything is individual. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think it's, in, at least in my approach to it, that it's really incumbent upon every person to find out what their way to transparency with spirit is. Would you say? I, I think in theory you're right. In practice, I don't know. I've yeah. seen an awful lot of people trying to insist this is who I am, and they have no idea who they really are. That might be the, who their ego is, Yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I said to myself, I was outside a friend of mine's coffee shop one time, and my ego had gotten me into trouble yet again. And I said, what good is the ego? Why do we have one? And the answer came back that it was uh, like a doorway or a window, and it's been really useful for me to attend. It's very true. To the Two ego things that I'll mention there. Okay. One is that man is able to find God as the animals are not because man has an ego. An animal suffers and doesn't know what to do about it and doesn't think it wants to do anything. When man mm -hmm. suffers, he says, I want to do something about it. Right. He needs that right. ego for that. Then there was another interesting thing. Years ago, I worked in an uh, office with a plate window, sort of large window, yeah. and a garden outside it. And I used to enjoy looking up from my desk and feasting on the greenery and so mm -hmm. on. Then one day there was a big rainstorm, and uh, it spattered mud all over the window. And for two weeks, I didn't have time to clean the window. <laughs> and finally, I got out there on one Saturday and cleaned it up and uh -huh. looked back, and I said, oh, what a beautiful window. Yes. And suddenly I realized the reason it was beautiful was that I couldn't see it. I could see through it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because it really seems to me that the ego, when attended to... I mean, we, we all have one, and, and it must have some function. And in... Um, what did Yogananda say about self-realization? Was it that? You know, in his poem, Samadhi, he said, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. Mm -hmm. Even a master has to have enough sense of ego to hold the, body, the atoms of his body together, mm -hmm. to know that it's he who's supposed to be walking and talking and eating and whatever. There isn't the attachment to it. There isn't that sense and that I'm separate from you and this other and so on. And wouldn't you say that that is really the cause of suffering is attachment? Mm, identification, suff attachment is probably the major cause, but it's also this identification with this ego, which he didn't have. I remember right, walking right. around the desert, his desert compound, when I was working with him on the Gita, mm -hmm. and I had to catch him. And he, he, he was about to sort of, he wasn't falling, but he was not. <laughs> he said, uh, when he began walking again, he said, 
it's so difficult for me to know which body I'm supposed to keep moving. Right, I mean, right, all bodies. Right, right. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, I was delighted again to read the Bhagavad Gita, and um, the story goes that uh, Krishna and Arjuna go between these two armies, and the armies are getting ready to battle, and, and uh, Arjuna says, why do we have to battle? That's a question to me. But it, you said in your book that it was an inner battle. And how do we get away from, as humans, projecting onto the other, for example, the people in Iraq, uh, or years ago it was the Russians during the Cold War. How do we get away from that and take the battle inside, and why does it have to be a battle? I know there's a lot of questions here, but... <laughs> well, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> Let me just say first in principle that objectively speaking, there are righteous wars. Supposing some country invaded us, we would be right to defend ourselves. But does that, that raises the question, is mm -hmm. the Iraq war uh, a righteous war? I'm not at all prepared to mm -hmm. say that it is. Right. Nor am I going to get World political war II enough to say that it's not. I just don't know. World War II I have my suspicions. World War II, I think, was a good example because mm -hmm. I grew up in Europe and uh, I knew the, the uh, Germans and I, I knew I'd met some wonderful Germans mm -hmm. and uh, here I was supposed to fight them. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, <clears throat> there are times of righteous outward war and Krishna representing God in the case of the Battle of Kurukshetra, the war of Kurukshetra said this was a righteous war. Arjuna's reason, and here there are two things that show you that it's really a symbolic thing. No general in his right mind would ask to be driven between the two armies on the eve of battle. Yep. He'd be on a mountain surveying the scene. Absolutely. But he wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the first stanza of the Gita, of the Bhagavad Gita, puts it in a spiritual context by saying, what did they? Now, the purpose of uh, Dhritarashtra, who was the father of the, of the Kurus, the wrong side, he, he was blind. So he asked Sanjaya, who had distant vision, psychic vision, but the normal thing you would ask in such a circumstance would be, how are they doing? Yes. I mean, when there's a war on, I remember during World War II, I was, I was in this country then, and uh, every day you want to know wars, what's happening and yeah. all that. He didn't say that. He said, what did they? That shows that it's a psychological battle. Because in oh. a psychological battle, you don't know which side is winning. You do your best, but it's afterwards that you can look back and say, oh, I didn't do that quite right, or yeah, I did it and right. And you get another opportunity And so to... the symbolism of the war of Kurukshetra is only superficially a righteous war, which human beings could question, was it right, was it wrong, and so right. on. But in your inner self, every human being has, and going between the two, the battle scene is the spine. Those yes. tendencies in the spine that take you up toward God, which are virtues, mm -hmm. those which take you down into matter, which are material attachment and desire, and therefore the host of things that come as a result of that, anger, jealousy, etc. Mm -hmm. so. We need to take a quick break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I'm speaking with Swami Kriyananda. We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. I'm speaking with Swami Kriyananda. I was very impressed about the allegorical nature of the Gita, as you, and I think there are too few people in the West 
who really understand it. What, what function does the Gita perform for us as humans, as a culture, and how can we... The Bhagavad Gita is the best love scripture in India. Mm -hmm. But many Indians also don't understand that. I mean, they, who can understand something that's so cosmic? But um, <laughs> many Indians don't understand that it's even allegorical. And they think it's a literal thing. Uh -huh. And the truth is that Krishna was talking on all levels. Mm -hmm. they, there's that ancient hermetic saying, as above, so below. Yep. So the truth at the highest level is also, you can translate it onto the lowest level. And Krishna is saying that there are times when it's a righteous war. And basically, you could put it this way, ahimsa, nonviolence, is one of the spiritual principles. Yes. But you can't practice it literally. You drive your car, you kill all sorts of insects, you've got nothing against yeah. them, but they're there. You can't live without killing. The important thing is not to wish ill toward anyone. Yeah. So what Krishna says is, even if you have to fight, don't hate. Mm -hmm. Your attitude still is the determining thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, or oh, there's another thing that he says, mm -hmm. and it's the truth too, but it's not the sort of thing that the ego can see. He's saying that they don't die anyway. You can't oh, kill right. anyone. Right. right. They just go on forever. And well, how many bodies? But uh, a different form. Yeah. But hate is really the hate is, is the, the real thing. problem. Yes. And of course, all negative emotions. I wanted to also ask you about a corollary to this about when, when there is tension within a group or within oneself, how do we manage that tension? There's so many answers to that because there's so many causes of tension. So you have to go to the cause first. I think so. I'm, I'd have to think this one through. Okay. I've created a community, as you mm -hmm. know, it's nearly yes. 40 years old. I've been teaching now for nearly 60 years, so mm -hmm. I've got some experience. Yes. I think sometimes the more experience you get, the less you really can be specific. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But actually, I would say, because I've had lots of opposition in starting the community and mm -hmm. so on, wish everybody well. Try to do a good thing and be impersonal. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you be, be impersonal? Because many people equate impersonality with coldness yes, or apathy, yes, but yes. I don't mean it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want anything for yourself. But God is impersonal in that he wants nothing from us except our love. But he loves us and he wants the best for us. And that's how we should try to be toward each other. Not like people for what they can give you, but just like them for what you can give them. And I think that one basic rule of that, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to think about, everybody's looking for the same thing you are. They may define it right. this way or that way, but everybody wants happiness. Everybody mm -hmm. wants bliss. A mafioso might think that you'll get it from power and inflicting right. pain and all sorts of things, but he's mistaken. He won't find it that way. And after many incarnations, we all wake up from our different individual delusions and find out, well, that wasn't the way to do it, but in myself, I can find it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things here that, that come to mind also, but I wanted to continue to follow up about the management of tension. Mm -hmm. um, in the piano or in any instrument that has a string, it won't make a sound. It what? It won't make a sound without that string <laughs> being tightened. That's an interesting point. And it's the balancing of that tension that allows the harmony to come forth. 
you're obviously right. You're obviously contradicting what I think, and I agree with you. I think you're right. I'm contradicting <laughs> what you think? Yeah, because I oh. think the more relaxed you are, the more you're in tune. But oh. it's a different kind of relaxation. Yes. You've got to be alert. Yes. yes, And that's where the tension comes in. It's not tension. In other words, I can... It's attending. I can, uh -huh. It's attending. Yeah. Putting your attention. That's right. That's a very good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. In other words, I can get more from what somebody's saying if I listen than if I keep wanting to interrupt or interfere or yes. object to. Those all would require tension. But to be attending to him, listening to him, and receiving what he says, that's important. And that comes by relaxation. And as I say in the Gita, as Yogananda said, that, that meditation is really a process of deeper and deeper relaxation, but it's relaxation upwards, so I actually become more and more aware. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've had the interesting sensation of a piano when it has been too relaxed, when it, ha mm. when I, when it hasn't been tuned in five or ten years, mm. and then I'll bring it up to where it's designed to be, it kind of goes, oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm now where I was designed. So, you know, uh, this comes back to this notion of attunement, about how does God want Anthony or want Swami Kriyananda to be? And when we are in the most refined attunement, and you say that it's an ongoing process, which I agree with you, I mean, it goes on infinitely. But yes, but the beautiful thing is that Anthony will never be Swami Kriyananda, and Swami no. Kriyananda will never be Anthony. But there is So a... his attunement is different in each person. Yes, yes, yes. And yet the more attuned I become, the, the I becomes, and the more transparent that is, the closer uh, and the more uh, transparent becomes this vessel to the will of God. That's right. But I, th then it comes to the next question about, about the one soul, about karma and reincarnation. Does, are there infinite threads? If I'm you, if we are one being, it, are there the infinite threads that run through each life that if we had infinite awareness, we could say, oh, well, uh, in, in fact of reality, I am you. If we could follow these... You've got, you've got it by slightly the wrong handle. Okay. Everybody goes through all sorts of experiences in many lives, but it's always the same ego. And because he's himself, let's say everybody becomes a pirate. Each one will be his kind of pirate. Yes. Each one will be his kind of uh, businessman or whatever it might be. So it's not a sort of a cosmic thread that uh, reshapes itself. It's always your individuality for eternity. And that's the incredible thing. Yogananda said that every atom is dowered with individuality. And yes. your ego is one of those atoms. That's been a puzzle to me about the paradox of simultaneous unity and separateness. I tell you, I think one of the beautiful things about the spiritual path is that it's nothing but paradoxes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then coming next to karma itself must be transcended in dedication to the truth is one of the things that you said. Can you talk about uh, the dedication to truth and transcendence of karma? Well, dedication to truth and trans, uh, uh, rising above karma, I've got the word wrong here. Um, they're different things. Dedication to truth is the beginning of it. It's not the explanation of the whole process. Mm -hmm. By dedication to truth, you're dedicated to what is. Truth is what is. Yes. Then your dedication to what is true and to what is, you no longer have desires. 
desires are always based on wishing things could be something else. Oh, yes. Total acceptance of yep. what is means you rise above that. Now, to be more practical, to get rid of your karma, Krishna has, first of all, the rule, nishkam karma, which means action without desire for the fruits. You do the best you can, but mm -hmm. let the results there be what they are anyway, so that your dedication to truth is that if you bet on a horse, which of course I don't think that a devotee would do, but you're not there screaming at right. the rails waiting for no. it to come in. You just, if it loses, okay, it loses. Mm -hmm. And so nishkam karma means just to accept what is, recognize it, that is true. The other thing is you've got to, that's a point of relaxation. You've got to go through your memory. And that means countless, countless incarnations. Mm -hmm. And remember all those different people you were. First of all, the liberation comes from the word in, in, in Sanskrit is, is uh, jivanmukta. Jivanmukta means freed while living. And that means that in this life, you no longer have any ego sense. You no longer think, mm. I'm doing it, he's doing it through me. Yes. But you had many lives when you were in ego. And you have to remember them and release those memories into the infinite by seeing it was God who was dreaming everything. So that raises a very interesting philosophical point. Is God then evil? Yes, he is, but it's not evil. He's above evil. Yes. He's above good. It is only that part of his consciousness which takes things outward away from oneness with him into manifestation. Into polarization. And you have to see him, all the things you did, even in this life, whatever mistakes you make, don't say, I made it. Say, he made it through me, and you feel free from that. Well, but that doesn't release an ego from continuing to attend That's to it. the good. That's it. Of course it doesn't mean, oh, well, he did it so I can keep on doing it. Right. No, because when you have that attitude, you try to attune yourself with what his will would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so much appreciate talking with you um, uh, about these things. Well, uh, they're very important questions. Mm -hmm. And I think... Too many in the West haven't studied uh, the Gita as deeply as they might. They haven't studied themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. Well, we have to take a break. I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Swami Kriyananda. We'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're speaking with my guest, Swami Kriyananda. So I wanted to ask you about Indra's net. About? Indra's net the net that connects everything. Can you, can you talk to us about in that particular Indra's net? This is sort of out of context from the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, it's a little out of context, but I, I have a comparable phrase, web of consciousness. Yes. Same idea. Yes. It is the infinite one in his dream. He's in everything, just as when you're dreaming. I remember a dream I had when I was young. I wanted to be a playwright. Mm -hmm. And uh, halfway through the dream, I thought, well, this guy isn't advancing the plot. So let's go back to the beginning. And I took him out of it and continued the plot without him, and it made a much better story. Yes. Well, that's Indra's net. He dreams all these things, and yet he isn't that. Just as in your dream, you aren't that, but you've fantasized it. Mm -hmm. So he has fantasized you and me. So, and then that brings me to another question about Creating magnetism. I should go on further with that question of Indra's net. Oh, please. What it means then is that we are all connected. 
Literally. Uh, yeah, literally. And in fact, as John Donne says in his poem that no man is an island, we are connected in some way so that anybody's sorrow in some way affects us. Yeah. It may not make us sorrowful. <clears throat> but there's a beautiful poem about Buddha, um, Sir Edward Arnold's Light of Asia. Do you remember that poem? No, I don't. Oh, I'll it's look, worth reading. It, it's yes. beautiful. Anyway, when Buddha achieves enlightenment, everybody in the world feels somehow uplifted. And I think that anything that we are has an effect and an impact on our environment and on the country. Mm -hmm. And we owe it to our fellow man as well as to ourselves to try to live in a more updated, uplifted, I should say, state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How are we then literally connected? Because I know that that's true, but it is so contrary to Western normal consciousness. Thinks that we create consciousness with the brain. Yeah. They have this delusion, and it is a delusion, that if we can make a computer sophisticated enough, it'll become conscious. I'd say there wasn't much less, much less sophisticated than a worm, but a worm is obviously conscious. Oh. Consciousness produces the brain, it produces the worm, it mm -hmm. produces the rocks, and we don't make consciousness, we are conscious. So we are manifestations of that cosmic consciousness is not that we've created anything. Mm -hmm. The human brain is capable of being more conscious. I don't think that you could sit down to a game of chess with a rhododendron bush, but there's consciousness in that bush. <laughs> right, right. Well, and to attend to that and to honor it hmm. in, in uh, recognizing I mean, it's a wonderful thing to go down the streets of a city mm -hmm. and feel these people are all a part of myself. Mm -hmm. and it's to, a very uh, uplifting feeling. But in a very real uh, and literal way, in the way that my finger is a part of my hand. Maybe my consciousness doesn't <clears throat> allow me to attend to my hand. Well, there are nerves in your hand that bring it to the brain and the brain brings it to your consciousness. Mm -hmm. The great web of consciousness that connects me with you. Um, is not so obvious, it's very subtle, but the more subtle I am in my consciousness, my guru could, un could react and feel the really little tremor of thought that I had. Mm -hmm. And sometimes at a distance, he would, uh, something I had said or done, he would correct me when I saw him. And uh, he never failed, he was always right. So once you get into cosmic consciousness or divine consciousness, you realize that that consciousness is in your brain, but it's also outside. And you can respond to the slightest tremors of feeling, of thought. It's a very good exercise, in fact, that my guru taught when you walk in the country to feel each tremor of the leaves around you, to feel the breeze as your own, your own part of your own breath, yeah. to everything, sort of feel it as a part of you. Actually, it's a very exhilarating practice, and I'd recommend it. So is it a state of meditation? Walking, it's a kind of meditation. waking meditation. Yeah, it's like uh, the Buddhist state of walking meditation. It's very good. Mm -hmm. And just for practical purposes, is it? Do you meditate on a daily basis, or do you have a? You know, I was I was sitting with a um, a Buddhist monk that I had studied with for uh, some years, and he stopped his zazen and 
began lecture, and then the lecture was finished, and he was talking with people, and I was attending to what he was doing, and I thought, well, now, wait a minute. His consciousness hasn't changed. And it shocked me to realize that one could be in a continual state of meditation. Mm. And this is what you're saying. Is That's that what I'm talking about. Yes. I'm also talking about stages up to that realization. Yeah. But the more we try to keep that even mind in everything that we do, you know, when you look at human beings, you normally see ego in the eyes. I would look in my guru's eyes and I wouldn't see any ego. Mm -hmm. I, I could never remember what he looked like. I'd have to look at a photograph because he was different for every, every moment, but yet he was always the same. But not anything that you could hang an image onto. True. Oh, that's True. great. And it comes to my next question about creating magnetism and tuning into the consciousness of another. This is directly related to this. When you're walking, how do you attend to the slightest tremor of the life that is this <clears throat> consciousness? Try to feel it's a part of a much larger consciousness that is you mm -hmm. than your little brain and your little body. Yeah. First of all, begin by feeling that it's divine energy walking and using your muscles. You're using that energy rather than just food-generated energy. Then you begin to try to feel that the wind is a part of your breath and mm. it's not so hard. Then you begin to feel the tremor of the leaves and you feel that that's a part of my consciousness. Finally, even a honking horn of a car, you feel, try to feel as if God is trying to say something to you through that. Mm -hmm. You'll be surprised how often he will. I don't say necessarily through the honking of a car, but it might be. Right. You find some kind of inspiration in just about everything then. Well, and it brings me to the, to the, the point of when Buddha realized enlightenment, it was when he saw the planet Venus rise. He went, I didn't know that. I'm that. Yes, he was sitting under the Bodhi, the Bodhi tree, or the Bodhi tree. Bodhi. And after he meditated and wrestled with demons all night long, Venus rose, and he saw the star, and he said, I'm that. And in that moment, he was, he was enlightened, is how the story goes. Let's put it this way. You have seen Venus. I have seen Venus. It didn't happen to us. There was something more than Venus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, though, sometimes that I that Anthony disappears and there's only a uh, piano being tuned. That's right. But I'm saying that specific thing, like Ramakrishna saw a vision of the cranes when he was a child and went into samadhi. But oh. it's not as if seeing cranes will make people go into samadhi. It's his response to what he's yes. experienced. And there has to be a readiness. Yeah. And a, and a, and a, a, a real interest and a focus of attention. That's what it is. Yes. 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 Um, I wanted to talk also about about karma. I know that karma is a causal phenomena. Um, I talked to a, um, oh, a Western physicist uh, some months ago, and they said that cause and effect are the same. Can you talk about that? In that, a way that is absolutely true, but it's awfully absolute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in this relative world, we can't really think in terms of absolutes because whereas it's true, you can't see it. You've got to, we have to think in terms of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. I, uh, some people asked Yogananda, who caused God? He said, that's, you're asking that because you live in the realm of causation. And it's not linear. But right. there's no cause there. Mm -hmm. There just is. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they are one. But um, I don't think 
that much gain can come from puzzling things like this out. Just recognize that it's all one. Because I think about that and, and that facilitates my, knowing that cause and effect are the same, mm. gives some real figure ground to the illusion of linear time. Well, I do agree with that. And no. I, I accept that whatever you do has already got its effect built in. It's a yeah, part of it. Right, right. In fact, it's very interesting to see how um, when people suffer, suffering and joy are really one. And when people suffer, yep. they, they're actually enjoying it. And that's a hard one to get across. Right. No, no, but I know. Just think how years later, what do they talk about? Right. <laughs> All the suffering they went through. Yeah, and there's, that, there's joy that can be found. I had that. a very yeah. interesting experience. I was in Carnegie Hall. Uh, Kubelik was directing. Mm -hmm. And I had bought a dictation machine that day, and the uh, shop salesman recorded on it to see if it would work. And mm -hmm. in the middle of this, it was the Smetna Symphony. And... Uh, I, I thought, I wonder if this dictation machine would be able to record at a distance like this. So I turned it all the way up to be sure it would record at a distance, and I pushed the button. It was the wrong button. Uh-oh. It filled the whole hall. Hello, testing, <laughs> one. <laughs> it got up to four because before I could find that button, oh, it was no. in my pocket. Yes. And I was thinking, even as that happened, boy, this will be a great story. Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, I'm coming to another point on the list here is Sanjaya, introspection. Can you talk to us about introspection? Well, what you need to do is this cause and effect thing that you've talked about. Mm -hmm. You need to introspect of, uh, this is things you can't do it until after the event, but looking back over, let's say you said something to somebody that was perhaps rude or unkind or something. Mm -hmm. Introspection says, how did I feel from that? Mm -hmm. Introspection asks the heart, does it give you a little feeling of enclosing uh, in, in, in an ego or a feeling of I was kind and I feel uh, expanded? So introspection helps you to look over your life and say, well, this made me happy and brought me more freedom. And this brought me more confinement and mm -hmm. uh, pain. To provide a figure ground. One other word that I wanted to ask you about is shushumna. Can you talk to us about shushumna? <clears throat> You've probably eaten fish. Yes. I don't eat fish now, but I remember when I did, which mm -hmm. was 60 years ago. And that those two filaments that go down the spine, you see the little sort of like strings yes. in the spine of a fish? That is the ida and the pingala. Those are the, the outer spine, you might say. Mm -hmm. And in the human being, this ida and pingala account for the rising and lowering energy. This is outward. It's your reactive energy. So that when you feel good about something, you inhale, your energy goes up. When you feel bad about something, the best thing is to look at children because they have very oh, yes. little control mm -hmm. over their expression of feeling. So they jump up and down if they're excited or if they're depressed, they beat on the ground and stoop over. And right. all of this is an expression, something we all go through. Now, when you go into your deeper self, this is the sushumna. And the energy begins then to rise toward the brain. And this is why all religions speak of heaven as above and hell as below. I mean, if you lived in 
New Zealand, it would still be up for your body, although down for us here in America. And so it's relative to your body that that heaven and hell exist. But as your energy flows up, and everybody's got this experience, they, they all say, I feel high, I feel uplifted, or I feel depressed, I feel downcast. So the sushumna is the inner energy, and when it rises in the sushumna, that's when you rise toward enlightenment. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more I could say on that, but that's a good beginning. Part of the state of meditation that you're that we're talking about is to be attending to the rising and the falling of that. So one is mindful. Yes and no. Okay. First you need to become aware of the rising and falling with the breath. But then you're going to go deeper than that. And then comes the awakening of what is known as Kundalini. And that energy is upward. Always upward. Yes. Well, no. It can go downward too. Uh-huh. You can fall from the human state even. But that's another subject. Right. right. I'd say your readers, if they read this book, will find it extremely interesting, but awfully deep, mm -hmm. and not something to talk about here, I think. Well, we don't have enough time. And exactly. Speaking of which, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're speaking with my guest, Swami Kriyananda. We'll be right back. Well, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm here with my guest, uh, Swami Kriyananda, and uh, you're listening to Attunement. I know that you're a composer of many works, and what was your first instrument? Well, I used to play the piano. I mm -hmm. studied it for many hours a day when I was a child. And uh, singing also, because I have a good singing voice, so I yes. studied singing. And I can't say that I'm an instrumentalist or a musician or even a composer, but music has come to me. And uh, I didn't know anything about composing. I took a course in composition. But I never went to class and flunked the course. Mm -hmm. So I can't really claim anything except that somehow I understand. When I want uh, a melody to express a certain state of reality, whatever it might be, it's there and I, I don't have to look for it. I can't explain it, it's just there. So there's not too much to say about it except babble. <laughs> well, but you're in a whole different realm of because I play the harp as well as the as well I've as the piano. music for the harp too. Yes, and I've heard uh, direct bell <laughs> of mm -hmm. the uh, of the chieftains mm -hmm. uh, that piece those pieces that you've written and they're quite beautiful. Uh, but you're you're talking about a very different structure than Western music is normally uh, accustomed to, and I have to say also in knowing in not as deep a way as I might like the, the work of the Indian master musician um, uh, Ali Akbar Khan Ali Akbar Khan but also uh, the sitarist Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar yes it's an entirely improvisatory art form yes I'm western I can't I wouldn't know that one so well but I, in a way do you not improvise in your spiritual unfoldment I suppose so. I mean, I do. Within a structure. I react to it, each individual and each situation. You could put it that way, but mm -hmm. if, I were to, if, I were, if you were to say sit down and improvise, I don't know what the heck I'd do. But when I mm -hmm. ask, then I know. So right. what, always what I do is not a pattern of notes. It's actually a message. And you can hear that somewhat, even yeah. in music. Yeah. If it goes up, it tends to lift the mind. When it goes down, it tends to... Depressed the mind. One time I had a, an intriguing thing. I had a slideshow of Romania, and I grew up in Romania, and I know that Dracula is not a legend there, at least I never heard it. 
Dracula in Romanian means devil. Mm -hmm. But there was an old ruler there called Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Devil, mm. as you have William the Conqueror and, yeah. and so on, names. But uh, anyway, I wanted a song that would express Dracula. Well, it's not really my sort of thing. And so I just put my hands on the keyboard and I said, God, move my hands to give this melody. Darn if it didn't come immediately. I was yep. amazed. It was yep. thump, thump, thump. Dum, 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 dum. Right. And it worked perfectly. But that's the amazing thing, and you got out of the way, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just let him do it. Yeah. But it's not, I don't know what to say. I had to cooperate. It wasn't like automatic writing. Yeah. I had to be conscious. Well. And yet, I had to cooperate what I felt with what I felt was wanting to happen, that's what happened. Okay. Isn't that sort of what you're talking about? I mean, isn't that what the Bhagavad Gita is inviting us to? Absolutely. Absolutely. But when you mentioned Ravi Shankar, yeah. I just don't know that tradition well enough to say that I could begin to do what they do. Well, not in the deepest technical idea of it, but... No, you know. I mean, I love their melodies. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I did one time I... Yogananda wrote commentaries on the Bhagavad, on the uh, um, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Yes. And I wanted a melody. You know, they're all in the Rubaiyat means uh, quatrain. They're all in a mm -hmm. specific form. Rhythmic and, uh, structure, yeah. I wanted to do a melody for it, and suddenly it came to me. Awake for morning in the bowl of night Has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight and lo, the hunter of the east has caught the sultan started in a noose of light. And it was very <laughs> Persian music, and I didn't know it. it just was there, and I, I yep. sang it to somebody from Persia. His first comment was, oh, that's Persian. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you tune into it, and then it's there. Yes. Oh, but that's the whole idea of, for me, the spiritual path is completely musical, but it's even beyond that. I mean, it's even... I think music of all the arts is the most direct. Yeah. It communicates consciousness most directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the end here and um, the close of the interview. And uh, I so much want to thank you for being willing to talk with us. And is there some things that you want to talk about? The, uh, well, about when the you began, you talked about Ananda being controversial. Yes. I wanted you to comment on that. It's not controversial. It's a thing that has helped many thousands. And when you do good work, people do try to fight it and beat it down. But we've survived and thrived, and that means that there's some truth there. Oh, that's not what I meant to imply. I meant well, that I... Controversy you know. means that. I'll tell you what my experience was this morning. I, I wanted to find out some more information before our interview, and I went on the web, and then I saw your website, and then I saw the other website about, about the things that were going on in the mid-90s. And I looked at that, and I thought, hmm, now that's very interesting. Uh, and I'll leave that for our, our listeners to explore. But I, I wanted to um, speak about that at the beginning in a manner of speaking to let you know that, indeed, I had seen that. And yet, I so much want to, in our interview, honor what your process is and and give appreciation to that. And, and I do understand that there are people who have some difference of opinion. 
I don't difference even worry of experience. about it. I've never read that website. <laughs> okay. I know it exists, but I think that our job is to put out love and kindness and joy and how other people take it. I mean, you can say, I love you, and somebody will say, what do you mean by that? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's always that. So is it a valid thing? It's valid that they express what they think, but what they think may not be valid. And I want to go back to something you said earlier in the interview, was to, to be other than hateful. Yes, yes. And I think that's really a key component of, of what I you're talking so. about. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, there were plenty of people who, uh, they know that Christ was crucified, but they look at the people who crucified and they looked at him, and it's not quite the same thing. No. So it's not, oh, well, everybody's opinion. You, you know. can give their, them the right to have an opinion, but still there are true opinions and false opinions. Right. Yeah. And, so and people I don't need to answer, come. But I just make that statement. Right. And people need to come to their own awareness of yes. themselves. That's right. You know. And That's I guess right. that was my intention uh, to open the interview with that. I appreciated this interview and I liked it. Well, I, I thank you. Appreciate having you here. So. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and I've been interviewing my guest Swami Kriyananda. Swami Kriyananda has just come out with a new book called The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita, explained by Paramhansa Yogananda. You can find more information about this book by contacting Crystal Clarity Publishers at 1-800-424-1055, and you can find them on the web at www.crystalclarity.com. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L. C-L-A-R-I-T-Y, crystalclarity.com. Again, the 800 number is 1-800-424-1055.